Rachel, good morning. Welcome to Peninsula Bible Church. During our little meet and greet time, I met a bunch of new people. Uh, this a collection of people over here are all Stanford students from the Ivy Christian Fellowship, right? So why don't you all stand up? We want to welcome you. Thanks very much. Among them is Hannah McGoran, a Stanford student who grew up here at PBC. So it's nice to see Hannah again. Uh, so we're in the book of Exodus, as you know, and uh, we're going to be getting into the nine plagues today. When I was 27 years old, I was working for a newspaper in Los Gatos. I was the editor of the paper, in fact. And one day, the publisher, who was the new publisher, called me into her office and informed me that, our, that my services would no longer be needed. I was fired, and uh, she gave me a bunch of reasons for that, but really the real reason was that uh, we had different visions for the newspaper, in, in her mind anyway. I didn't think they were that different. But anyway, uh, right then and there, she said I had to leave. I had to pack up my things. I had to leave. I didn't see this coming. I was in a state of shock. And our offices were downstairs at Linden Plaza, so I had to grab all my things. I had to walk up the stairs and as I was walking up the stairs, I was in a total state of shock. I had no idea what was coming next. I didn't even know how to think about what was coming next. I was in a difficult place. What now? I'm guessing that many of you have been in difficult places throughout your lives, and uh, perhaps you are in a difficult place right now, and you are wondering, what now? Well, when we meet the Israelites here in the book of Exodus, they are in a difficult place. In fact, they've been in a difficult place for 400 years. And that difficult place has actually become more difficult because Moses has returned. Now, Moses has returned in obedience to the Lord, ostensibly to help liberate the people from bondage, but actually things have gotten worse for the people of God. What now? We're going to look at the nine plagues and find out what now. So we come to the famous 10 plagues. We're going to look at the first nine of them. They come in three series of three, as we will see. And the 10th plague sort of stands alone. We'll begin to look at that next week. But for now, the nine plagues. So let's look at, first of all, at Exodus 7, 3 to 5. These verses form an apt introduction to the 10 plagues. These are the Lord's words to Moses. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. The Lord says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we see also in the plague's narrative that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It seems to go back and forth between Pharaoh hardening his own heart in resistance to the Lord and the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. So when the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, what he's really doing is cooperating with Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh has already made his decision, and, and the Lord is, is enabling Pharaoh to be maximally himself resistant to the Lord, resistant to the people of God. So that's what's going on with this whole thing. So now the Lord's purpose here is to multiply his signs and wonders in Egypt. So Egypt is a difficult place. 
the people are in bondage there, and the Lord wants to prove himself to be powerful by multiplying his signs and wonders in this particular place with the purpose that everyone has the opportunity to know the Lord. Here, it's Pharaoh who has the opportunity to know the Lord. But throughout uh, these, plagues, these plague stories, you see this phrase over and over again, or something like it, that you may know that I am the Lord. So that's the ultimate purpose in this, that you may know that I am the Lord, especially that you may know how great it is to know me. For the Israelites back then, for the Egyptians, for Moses, for Aaron, for the Egyptian musicians, for everyone in the story, and of course, for us today, because these stories come to us that we may know how great it is to know the Lord. So where does the Lord multiply his signs and wonders? In the land of Egypt, in the place of difficulty, in the land of bondage. Now the Lord showed Moses some signs out in the wilderness in order to convince him to come back to Egypt. Now it's one thing to show Moses a few signs in the wilderness when no one else is around. It's quite another to multiply signs and wonders in Egypt, this land of oppression and opposition and difficulty and slavery. The Lord wants to show himself to be great in this difficult place. So how do you know someone? How do you know the Lord? Mostly by what someone says and does, right? You know someone by virtue of what they say and also by what they do. It's no different from God. No different with God, I should say. It's uh, God says something, so we know something about him, and he does something in the world. Now here, he says in the book of Exodus what he's going to do, and then he does it. So we know God by virtue of what he says and what he does. What does he do for us? One of the things he does for us is he enters the Egypts of our lives, so to speak. The, those places of difficulty, that place of oppression, that place of bondage, that place of restriction, the place of deep insecurity and anxieties. And the Lord wants to enter those places and show himself to be powerful there so that we can know how great it is to know him. Now, in the... Uh, and the 10 plagues, one of the things that the Lord does is he goes to war against the gods of Egypt. We see that in Exodus 12, 12. Now, all the gods of Egypt are false gods, but they believed in all of these uh, nature gods. So, for example, they believed in Hopi, and Hopi was uh, the god of the Nile. So the first plague affects the Nile, and so forth and so on. As we go through all of these plagues, the Lord shows these false gods, which do not exist, to be absolutely impotent, and he ultimately rescues the people of God. So you move forward into the New Testament, and what is the Lord doing? He's going to war. War against who or whom? He's going to war against Satan and the demons. What's he doing? He's rescuing the people of God. Just as he rescued the people of God from Egypt back in the day, he rescues us from Satan's sin and death today so that we are no longer, if we put our faith in Christ, in bondage to sin. So that's how this whole story ends up being fulfilled in the New Testament. The Lord says here that he will bring out his hosts or his warriors. Think about this. They've been in slavery for 400 years. They're not warriors, they're slaves. They have no idea how to fight, but the Lord's gonna turn them from uh, slaves into warriors. And he does the same thing for us. He transforms us from those who are in bondage to sin to those who are warriors for the kingdom. 
who fight for the sake of God, not obviously with swords and knives and guns and bombs, but with prayer, with the word of God, with love, by intervening in people's lives in various ways. He turns us into warriors for the kingdom. Now, the Lord shows himself to be different from everything else in the plagues. So he, he works through these, uh, these plagues, these three series of, uh, of three, through what we might call differentiation. So let's look at this chart, first of all, to see what's going on. There's a, there's a pattern here. So in the first three plagues, the Lord differentiates between his servants and Pharaoh's servants, his servants being Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh's servants being the magicians. And we'll see how this works, works out as we look deeper into the text here. Plagues four through six, the Lord differentiates between the Israelites and the Egyptians. Plagues seven through nine, the Lord differentiates between himself and everyone else. So you see how this works. It culminates in plague seven through nine. And the Lord ultimately through all of this wants everyone in the story to know that there's no one like him so that everyone in the story may know how great it is to know him. So, and he wants us to know the difference that it makes to know him. So let's look now at uh, the third plague and we're going to be looking at uh, Exodus 8, 18 to 19. The first two plagues, the, the Aaron and Moses are able to do these plagues, but the magicians of Egypt are able to duplicate the plagues. Now we come to the third plague. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the magicians are able to duplicate the first two plagues. And how they're able to do that, we don't exactly know. But the Lord allows them to duplicate the first two plagues. But they're not, they're not able to duplicate the third plague. So they are, their incompetence is showing. Their inabilities are showing beginning in the third plague. And, uh, but, but it's interesting because they're able to duplicate the plagues, but they're not able to reverse the effects of the plagues. That would be the helpful thing, right? Hey, you can turn the Nile into blood. Hey, I can do that too. Well, how is that helping things? Right? No, no reverse the plagues. That's going to help things. They can't do that. All they can do is duplicate it. And then when you get to the third plague, they can't even do that. They cannot duplicate it. And finally, they recognize in the third plague, this is the finger of God. See, these magicians, they're, they're acquainted with spiritual things, and they know when they've met their match. They know they're dealing with something more powerful than the gods that they're serving or trying to conjure or their own abilities to make things happen. This God, the God that they worship, is something different. And they make similar observations two more times in the plague narratives, finally telling Pharaoh, you got to let these people go because Egypt is ruined. And Pharaoh, of course, is resistant. But the magicians recognize here the finger of God and that their gods have met their match. How about our gods when we're not worshiping the true God? The things that we tend to put our trust in and hope in the job or the relationship or the success or whatever you name it, the power that we might be able to accumulate in life, whatever it is, eventually those gods are going to meet their match. And you're going to wake up one day and realize that they can't do what you want them to do. And whatever it is that they were doing, they can't do that anymore. 
There's this line from an F. Scott Fitzgerald story that I think of once in a while. He talks of a new generation in this story, he writes, a new generation that has grown up to find all gods dead. It's like they, they were younger and the, the gods were working, but they are grown up now and those gods just aren't working for them anymore. I think about that sometimes when I find myself trusting in things other than the one true God. In contrast to the new generation in Fitzgerald's story is Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew, the, you know, the great man who was uh, best known for smuggling Bibles into closed communist countries back in the day. And by the way, Brother Andrew just died last uh, month, September 27th at the age of 94. But in contrast to F. Scott Fitzgerald's new generation, Brother Andrew would carry in his old battered briefcase, on his old battered briefcase was this sticker that read, my God's not dead, sorry about yours. <laughs> he would get in your face for the sake of you, for your sake. And by the way, here's a brief story about Brother Andrew. We, had some, we shared some ministry at this church with Brother Andrew some years ago in a part of the world I can't really talk about that was closed to the gospel and was somewhat dangerous to go to. And uh, we got to know Brother Andrew a little bit. We invited him. He came here to preach here. This is, we're going back 20 years now. Uh, but on one particular trip that we, were, that we went to, I wasn't on this trip. I went, I think, three other times. See, see Chi out there. Chi, uh, Chi went on one of those trips. And, uh, but on one of those trips that I wasn't on, uh, they were all, uh, the PBC guys were breakfasting at the hotel with Brother Andrew, and they were recognizing that they were about to get up and preach the scriptures to pastors, and there's going to be an evangelistic meeting. And this wasn't the safest place in the world to do this. And they were joking. There was a little bit of gallows humor. And uh, Brother Andrew was hearing this and was having none of it. And he said to the guys from PBC, what, do you want to grow up and die as an old man of cancer in your bed? So for him... It was better to go out in a blaze of glory, <laughs> to, be, to get up and preach the gospel and to be gunned down. That was the way he wanted to go out. But of course, he didn't go out that way, did he? He died as an old man. I don't know if he was in his bed or not. I don't know if it was cancer or not, but he was 94 years old. But I do know that he left a blaze of glory that has inspired millions of people to follow Jesus. Okay, let's go to the fourth plague. And this is the Lord's words to Moses that he gives to Moses to share with Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8, verses 22 and 23. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. So the first three plagues affect everyone, Israelites and uh, the Egyptians included. And then the next plagues and following, the, uh, the Israelites are isolated. So we might ask ourselves, well, why do the Israelites have to experience the first three plagues? I think it's because of this. I think they need to be jolted out of their complacency. They've been in bondage for 400 years, and you can get kind of comfortable in your misery there, and you might know that if actually we're free in the wilderness, that's going to create difficulties. So they really need to be shown how miserable it actually is to be in slavery. They need to be jolted out of their complacency. But now beginning with the fourth plague, the land of Goshen is isolated. That's where the Israelites live, so they are not being affected by these particular plagues. Well, if you believe in Jesus, 
you've been isolated to a certain extent as well. You've been separated from the wrath of God. If you believe in Christ, that means you've been spared from the wrath of God. Look at uh, Romans chapter uh, 5, verses 8 through 10. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We are saved from the wrath of God only because of the blood of Christ, not in virtue of anything that we have done. And also, if you believe in Christ, according to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you so that there's a, a distinction that is made by virtue of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone who believes in Christ. We've been set apart. And maybe sometimes someone who doesn't believe is able to look on at someone who does believe or a group that does believe and say, maybe there's something going on there that's attractive that I like. Now, there are enough people in this world, sadly, who claim the name of Jesus and give people no good reason for following Jesus. Thankfully, there are also many hundreds of thousands of millions of people in this world who claim the name of Jesus, who have the Holy Spirit, who are ardently trying to follow him, and the Spirit is doing a transforming work in their lives. Years ago, I was sharing the gospel with an individual, with a man, and we would meet once a week. We'd do a Bible study. Uh, I would pray for him. He was seeking. And I kind of realized that it was just sort of just not enough, me, one-on-one. -on -one. So what I did is I invited him to play golf with a bunch of guys on Fridays. And these guys at PBC would go out every Friday. In fact, they're still going out every Friday. And uh, so I, I took uh, Joe out, and, uh, and he would share with me from time to time that there was something different in these guys he was golfing with over against his regular golf partners. He would see that these guys were encouraging. They weren't cutting him down. They weren't cutting other people down. They were very interested in him. In between shots, they would ask him about his life. And he says this was a very uplifting, encouraging experience for him. And he was able to see in these foursomes that would go out that there's something different going on here that was attractive to him. Eventually, Joe gave his life to Christ and was baptized. And part of it was those Friday golf guys. Shout out to the Friday golf guys. They're still going out and anyone can play. You never know what could happen. So now we go on to the seventh play. This is the final series of three. And again, these are the Lord's words to Moses that Moses is going to relay to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and, and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put, my, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord says to Pharaoh, hey, I could have been done with you a long time ago, but it's a measure of my grace that I've let you go on this far so that you can see my greatness. And notice how the word earth appears in these verses three times. Pharaoh thinks that he controls the earth, or at least his little corner of the earth, and he's got this power, or so he thinks, but he is absolutely impotent. He has no power in face of the power of the Lord because the Lord 
is, all, is, is the Lord of all the earth. And here the plagues are without precedent in their severity, the last three plagues, in order to demonstrate that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. That everyone may know the greatness of the Lord and how great it is to know him. So uh, we uh, tend to think we're in control sometimes, don't we? You ever feel that way? I know, you know, there are some who are control freaks and some of us are tend toward that, but even of those of us who don't tend toward that kind of think, okay, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. And uh, we live with some measure of control. And there are, sometimes I think we want to control other people. Pharaoh really was controlling other people or wanting to control other people, thinking that he was in control. We, 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 we bind people in some kind of vision for who we think they should be and what we think they should do. We try to control them. But in the end, control is an illusion, really. We're humans. There's very little control that we have in this world. And when, we, and when the people who are really dominated by this whole idea of control lose control, that's when they lose it and they can't handle it. And that's when they have the opportunity, of course, to turn to the Lord, and Pharaoh never does. Now, there are some very powerful people in this world who recognize the limits of their power. Take, for example, Ted Turner, media mogul. Years ago, he said this, I'd feel very powerful if my kids got straight A's and my wife never got mad at me and I never got a case of diarrhea. As it is, power is a bunch of hooey. <laughs> there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. That's the point. There is no one like the Lord in all the earth. Put your trust in him. So uh, remember now, all of these players in the drama have the opportunity to see the power of the Lord and the greatness of the Lord. How is Moses affected by this? Let's look at a couple pairs of verses to find out. First of all, let's look at seven, Exodus 7, 23, at the beginning of the plagues. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take, not take, he did not take even this to heart. He's unconcerned with this plague. Then move forward Toward the end of the plagues, Exodus chapter 10, verse 6, then he, that is Moses, turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now at the end, it's Moses who turns away from Pharaoh and is unconcerned because he's seeing the power of the Lord. Now go way back to Exodus chapter 2, 15, when Moses killed the Egyptian and Pharaoh heard about it. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from literally the face of Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So here there's this encounter from afar. Moses is distant from Pharaoh and is afraid and runs from Pharaoh. Now look at Exodus chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Then Pharaoh said to him, Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will never, I will not see your face again. So do you see what's happened to Moses? Now he's having a face-to-face -face encounter with Pharaoh and is completely unfaced. Before, with this distant encounter, he ran. 
Now he's face to face and he challenges Pharaoh. He doesn't care. What has happened to Moses? The nine plagues for one thing, or for nine things actually. Moses has seen the power of God. Moses has seen the Lord do great things in difficult places, and he has been transformed by it. The same thing can happen for us. Then the Lord says to Moses, you know what, Moses, after all of this, you're going to have a story to tell. And the Israelites are going to have a story to tell. Look at Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Moses, tell your son, tell your grandchildren. And there's a later plural you here for the Israelites so that all of the Israelites have a story to tell. Now, I would say Moses and the Israelites were faithful to tell this story. And the next generation was faithful to tell this story. And this story comes down through the centuries to us today. Now, we also want to think about what the Lord has done for us. And if the Lord has done something for us, especially if the Lord does things for us in difficult places, we then have stories to tell. Now, when, uh, our, uh, when my wife was pregnant with our two children, we sought names for them, and we told each of our children when they grew up the stories of how they got their names. Let me tell you the story of how Christina, our firstborn, got her name. So uh, our plan was, and Karen's my wife, is right over here, our plan was to suggest names to one another, think about them, pray about them, see if they resonated, and then if they did, we would stick with them for a while, and if they didn't, then we would pass on that name and go to the next name that we suggested. And we thought to ourselves, well, we don't know if a name is important, but if it is, and if God has a name in mind, we want to seek that name. And so we continued to pray and to think, and eventually the name Christina surfaced, or should I say resurfaced, because Karen suggested that earlier, it didn't resonate with me. Now later, she suggested again, it resonated once, it resonated this time with me, and I, I really liked the name, and we really liked it. And so we thought, okay, it's a month before the birth, and we're settling on Christina, that's what it looks like it's going to be the name. But we don't know, we'll keep praying, keep seeking the Lord. Two weeks before Christina was born, we go to this Italian restaurant and I had in, in North Beach in San Francisco and I had sort of befriended the restaurateur there. He was this Italian immigrant who loved playing the over-the-top Italian restaurateur for his patrons. And so I brought in friends and groups and men's groups from time to time and we had a great time with Franchino in his restaurant. So this time I come in with Karen and I play the Italian too because I'm having a good time. I say, Franchino, this is my wife. She's a pregnant and we're going to have a girl. And uh, Franchino looks at me and he says, wait, I will tell you what you should name her. He, turn, he turns around, he turns back to us. He says, you should name her Christina. It is a good Italian name. <laughs> oh, oh, Karen and I looked at each other and we knew that our search was over. <laughs> and we felt that the Lord led us to the name Christina. And of course, when Christina got older, we told her that story. That little girl is now 19 years old. She's a college sophomore, grew up with Hannah, by the way, in this church. They're the same grade. And uh, she is studying overseas this year in Switzerland. And on the long weekends that the school gives her and her friends, they will do some traveling 
So two weeks ago, she was in Italy with about a half dozen other friends. She was long, swimming with other, her friends along the Adriatic, and they met this Italian fellow by the name of Leonardo. And they, everybody introduced themselves to one another. And later that evening, Christina and her friends were dining outside in one of those Italian cafes. And lo and behold, Leonardo happens by, walks up to the table, recognizes these people. And uh, here's how Christina tells the story. He, that being Leonardo, approached us to say hello after spotting our group. He apologized, saying that he had forgotten our names, all except for mine. In the strongest Italian accent you can imagine, he exclaimed excitedly, but I remember you, Christina, because it is a good Italian name. <laughs> Here's what Christina says. I was speechless. Suddenly, I became my childhood self. Listening for the hundredth time about how I got my name. I guess I must have told that story to her a few times. Point. Tell the stories. Tell the stories about what God does. Tell the stories to your children, to your grandchildren. Tell them to anyone because you never know how God is going to use those stories and you never know whether one of those stories is going to resurface 19 years later. God does great things for us in difficult places so that we may know how great it is to know him. When I was 27 years old, I was fired. I walked up the stairs of Linden Plaza in a state of shock. I went on a sabbatical this year, and as part of it, I did a retreat at Big, in Big Sur, and on the way back, I decided to stop in Los Gatos. And I went back to Linden Plaza. Now, there's now a bench at the top of the stairs, so I could sit on that bench, and I could look at the stairs. And I could imagine myself, my 27-year-old self, walking up those stairs in a state of shock. And I said to myself, if I had the chance, what would I say to that guy? What would I say to my 27-year-old self if I had the chance? And after thinking about it for a while, I decided I would say this. You have no idea. You have no idea the great things that God is going to do for you. He is going to multiply his signs and wonders in this difficult place. More signs, more wonders, more signs, more wonders. And part of the story was transitioning from journalism to pastoral ministry. And it was all because of the Lord and being fired was part of it. How great is our God. God does great things. Amen. God does great things for us in difficult places. Why? So that we may know how great it is to know him. Would you please stand? We're going to continue worshiping in a moment. And after that, we're going to have an opportunity to share stories with one another about the great things that God has done for us in difficult places. And as I've said many times, we need to be a storytelling community so that, we've been, so that we can be encouraged by one another. So please think about how you might be sharing that. But before that, we're going to sing a song. Christ is our firm foundation. No matter how difficult the place, 
Christ is our firm foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have breathed out your word. We are grateful for what you say and for what you do. And we know that what you do is not just an ancient story, but what you do is current with us today, that you are powerful in our lives, to show yourselves show yourself powerful in our lives by doing great things today. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ is my firm foundation. The 